If you want a title for this morning's message, it's called Don't Waste Your Passion. And I'd be grateful, please, if you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. You know, one of the great joys I have as a pastor is being involved in people's weddings and helping out with, with people's wedding days and the joys of the wedding day. And so there's always the build-up to the wedding day, there's the marriage preparation, but then there's also the, the day itself and the joys of the day itself. And one of the joys of being a pastor is you get to be really close to people when they get married. And so when the vows are taking place and all that type of stuff, you're literally standing right there with them. And two weeks ago, on the 31st of January, when Tim and Katie Corish got married, that was no exception. It was a pure joy to be there. It was one of the best days weather-wise you could imagine for a wedding day. Every time somebody gets married in Britain, it usually rains. But here, you managed to actually get the sun, and it was just a joyful day outside of the facility. It was just bunting up everywhere, so they had a, a reception outside, first of all. And then in the evening, we got invited to a dinner reception, Emma and I, and that was actually Katie's parents' front lawn, which is just magic. To be there, and they had this, this swing band playing, they had a full on bar in the garage, and it was just so cool and such a good time. But the best moment for me in that wedding, just like with every other wedding, is that moment when the bride comes through the doors. I mean, that's a magical moment, isn't it? I mean, for Tim and Katie, they got married at Gorston Gorge Hall Community Centre there, and it's just got the longest aisle you're ever going to see. It's, it's far longer than even this room. And so I was standing on the stage with Tim and his groomsmen. And first of all, young Abel Carpenter comes in. I took about half an hour because he had very small legs. But he came through and he was carrying a ring, which then got passed on to Tim's best man. And then Bryn Fenn came through, just looking beautiful. And she was smiling all the way down like a pro. It was just a beautiful time. And then each of the bridesmaids came down, all four of them. And then the door shut. Everybody knew, knew what was going to happen next. And as the doors opened and the music got louder, in comes Katie with her dad. And she begins to cry straight away. She sees Tim. She's just overjoyed at what is taking place in this moment. And one of the great things for me was I was to Tim's left-hand side so I could see Tim as well. And what was clear in Tim's eyes is he is overwhelmed and exhilarated by this moment. I don't think he even noticed that there were about 400 people in the room because he's got eyes for one. And as she walked towards him, he just begins to fill up and he's radiating. He's so excited. And I'll never forget the moment when, because we're on the stage, Tim walked down the steps to greet me and her dad gave Tim Eddie's hand and he turned and come back at the stage, I'm standing on the top of the stage, so I can see everything. And he barely even knew my name at that point. He was so excited, he's nearly tripping over the stairs. Because all he's doing is looking at her. And with each step, he just kept looking at her. Now for a minister, I think that's one of the most precious and privileged moments you ever have. Standing there, seeing this couple, and seeing the look in the groom's eyes when he is about to receive his bride. And it's so precious, I think, because it really does give me, each and every time, a living picture of Christ's love for his bride. 
See, if you want to know how Jesus feels about the church, then just look at a groom's face in that moment when he is about to receive the bride, and you will see a dim picture of how Jesus feels about his church, his bride. Ephesians 5.25 says it this way. He says, Husbands, love your wives. It's an instruction to how husbands are to love and care for their wives. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You know, that's something I think we're often familiar with, but that truth is staggering. So often we see the church and we see it in rags and tatters, we see it in difficulties and challenge. And yet the church, the bride of Christ, is that which Jesus Christ made his life out for. He chose her before the foundation of the earth. He then at the right time died on the cross in her place. And even now he lives to sanctify her and cleanse her and purify her, making her perfect for his arrival on the great wedding day of the Lamb. He's passionate about her. And so the question I want to ask us all this morning to consider for our own lives is this. If Jesus is so clearly and evidently passionate about the church, if he so clearly, biblically defined, loves and is passionate about his bride, then does my life, does your life, reflect a similar passion for the church? See, we're called by God to be imitators of Christ, aren't we? Ephesians 5 verse 4. Called to imitate Christ. We're also called to be conformed more and more into the image of Christ. Book of Romans. We see in Scripture this whole premise of the need to become more and more like Jesus. And yet what we also see in Scripture is Jesus is without doubt head over heels passionate about his church. So how do you feel about it? How are you positioned towards it? How's your passion right now for the church? Well, let's pray and then we'll dive into this together. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We do thank you that you give us moments like this to encourage us and envision us and indeed cause us to evaluate ourselves in light of scripture. And Holy Spirit, would you have your way amongst us today? Lord, this is your pulpit. And when we gather around your word, it's not just some preacher telling people about Jesus, about you. It is a preacher through which you are communicating. Lord, we want to hear you today. We want to hear your words. We want to hear you speak to our hearts. The Holy Spirit, would you help us in this? Would you aid us in this? Help me. Amen. You know, when it comes to being passionate about the church, I think it is something that can be hard to get our hands around. It can be such a big thing. I mean, to be passionate about the church, does that mean we will have to die for the church? Is that what it really means? Well, no. Jesus, by his grace, wants us alive. But he wants us alive being passionate about the local church. So I've got five things this morning that I want to draw out. Many things you're not going to be unfamiliar with. And yet my issue isn't how unfamiliar or familiar you are with the details. 
My issue is how busy we are at applying it and understanding it and recognising it and embodying it. And I think for all of us, we grow cold to different things at different times, even things that are most important. So I want to be faithful to bring these to your attention. I want our passions to be in line with Jesus' passion. So what does it look like for somebody to be passionate about the church? Well, number one, here's the first thing I want you to be aware of. A person passionate about the church lives to see Jesus Christ glorified. That's where they start. It's what they're all about. They want their whole lives to be about Christ and Him crucified and all about Jesus. You know, as we look at God's plan for the church, which we're going to do today as we look through the book of Ephesians, we're looking at the most incredible game plan you've ever seen in your life. I mean, it is intricate, it is incredible, it is amazing. Seen correctly, it does indeed, I believe, take your breath away when you start to see not only is this dramatic, but my face is in the picture. And yet I submit to you right at the outset of this morning is if we don't understand that the local church isn't primarily about us, but instead is about Jesus, that he is the South Lad, that he is the one to whom everything is to point, he really is the one to whom this is all about. If we don't understand that, we will never be passionate about the church. Because we'll be coming at it all from the wrong angle in the first place. And that's why right at the start of Ephesians chapter 1, Paul takes the time, as he begins to lay out the great masterpiece of the church as biblically defined, he takes the time to help us see who the star player is. And what you discover is the star player is without doubt Jesus. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 1. Let's read from verse 3 through to 10. Notice how many times we read the words he or him. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which he has lavished on us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, things on earth. Look down at verse 22. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, even without the italics, do you get Paul's point? It's not about us. It's all about him. He's a star player. It's really like in sports. It's like the coach calling a timeout, pulling everybody in the church together and explaining, you all have important parts to play. You all, in God's timers, have parts to play. You must understand, he's the rock star here. He's the star player. He's the guy that's going to get the interviews. He's the guy that's going to get all the glory, and he should. 
The Apostle Paul wants us to understand right at the start that Jesus Christ is the star player in the church. And so as he begins to outline God's grand design for the church, he deliberately makes it very clear that it's all about him. That our election, our adoption, our justification, our redemption, our forgiveness, the fact that heaven is our home is all in Christ, it's all because of Christ, it's all through Christ, because he has done it all. Jesus Christ is the one to whom we owe all the glory. And you know, if we're going to be passionate about the church, if we're truly going to delight in the church and be excited about it, then we have to bottom out, this local sovereign grace church is not about me. It's about him. It's all about Jesus Christ. It's all about pointing people to him and bringing glory to him. You know, I think that's why John the Baptist got it so right. Because he modelled this and embodied this. In John chapter 3, when we're introduced to John the Baptist, he is at his heights of his powers. I mean, he really is the David Beckham of the day. This dude, everybody wants to meet, everybody wants to greet, everybody wants to see. In first century Palestine, John the Baptist was incredibly famous. He was like a cult hero of the time. Everybody knew his name and everybody loved him and everybody wanted to be with him. Gospel of Luke says about John, it says multitudes went out to hear John. In the Gospel of Matthew we read, people came to John from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. I mean that's massive. Thousands and thousands of people are pursuing John. And then Jesus rose up. John baptizes him and as soon as he baptizes him, what becomes evident is all of John's followers and they're going with Jesus. The multitudes are no longer turning out to John. They're starting to point out to Jesus. And on the front page of the Palestinian Times is now Jesus and not John. So John chapter 3, John's disciples start to talk to John the Baptist about this and say, listen, you know, what's up with this? You, know, you may not have noticed that that dude that you baptised, he's not taking all these people. And they're not talking about him anymore, John. They're talking about him. And John, in verse 29, John chapter 3, simply says, you know what? Good. And my joy is now complete. And he talks about how I'm not the bridegroom. But the bridegroom is the one that I got to baptize. And so people should now go with him. Because they're the bride. He's preparing the bride. And so I must decrease and he must increase. What a humble disposition though. I mean, imagine if that really was you. I think I'd be tempted to, you know, at least want to get a bigger stage than Jesus or have a microphone than Jesus to do something. It's like, come back. Not John the Baptist. It's like, this is what I've been waiting for. The bridegroom, Jesus Christ, has arrived. So go to him. I must decrease. He must increase. And my friends, I want to encourage you. If we're going to be passionate about the church, we have to be like John the Baptist. We must be aware it's not about me. It's about Jesus. It's all about him. His whole design is to point to him. And the person passionate about the church, I believe, gets that. That's not all they get. Number two. The person passionate about the church 
rejoices that it is God's plan to redeem a people. I love this. And one of the most joyful things about God's grand design for the church is that he hasn't, by his grace, not just saved us as individuals, he, he then takes us as individuals and brings people together. He not only justifies by ourselves, he joins people together in the community of the local church. And so in Ephesians chapter 2, look with me, in verse 19, he says this, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Notice the words there. They're intentional. Not a word is out of place. You're no longer strangers and aliens. That's the way he's talking about when you were with each other. Outside the local church, you would have never met. You would have never been interested. As God takes us to different tribes and languages and nations, you would have never encountered one another. But you're no longer strangers and aliens. He's not only reconciled us to himself, he's reconciled us to one another. And so now, in the grace of God, we're fellow citizens and members of a household together, being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That is staggering truth. He's taking us and building us together, putting us together, building a temple of God with us, one brick at a time, in which He will dwell for His glory and by His grace. You know, it's when we realise that, that I think we can see ever so clearly just how narrow and incomplete the all-too-common Lone Ranger approach to Christianity is. I mean, you just don't encounter in the Bible Christians going alone for Jesus. It's just not there. You don't find, you know, this sort of, well, you know what, my church, yeah, I don't really have a full committed church right now. I pop along different places. And at different times, I like, oh, listen to Hillsong and CD because I really like that music. And then I listen to a John Piper on message because I really like him. I mean, there's no one another. So you can't really do that in one another church. Long range of Christianity is not in the Bible. You know what it's like, long range of Christianity? It's like a brick in a field. It's like encountering a brick. It's like encountering a brick right there on the deck. And at the end of the week, you say, Brick, what are you doing? And they say, oh, I'm just right here being the temple of God. And you're a brick. So you're a brick for Jesus. You look like a lovely brick. But there's no way in the temple of God, basically. It's like encountering a child. And you encounter the child and you say, Hey, what are you doing? Oh, I'm the family of God. Well, you just look like one person and you're a child of God. No, I'm the family. I'm doing it alone. It's like you're carrying a lady, which would be odd, but a lady who's dressed as a bride and you say, well, who are you? I'm the bride of Christ. Uh, well, by yourself? Yes, I'm the bride of Christ. I'm doing it alone. No, you're not. It doesn't work like that. And yet when we refuse to get connected and committed to a church, that's exactly what we're doing. We're trying to be a brick for Jesus or a child for Jesus or the bride of Christ by ourselves. And the Bible, this Bible, knows nothing of that. And we're selling the church so far short when we're doing that. God's grand design is to take aliens and strangers and bring them together into connected and committed relationships. To be members, part of a household. 
being built together into the temple of God. Festo Kevin Geary, an African bishop, he says it this way. He says, the cutting of the stone is done and you have been fitted in. And that is how he is taking us. Stones of all races and backgrounds are fitting us together into a beautiful dwelling place for God. Isn't that wonderful? He's taking us from different tribes and languages and nations and he's bringing us into a dwelling place for God. His plan for the church is so much bigger, so much greater, so much grander than just you and I. And yet together then, what an incredible mission he's given us, hasn't he? See, as a local church, as a local expression of his bride in the world, we're called as a church to be his body. So Ephesians chapter 1 again, we've just read it, but we can miss it. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 22, it says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, listen, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Do you want to know where Jesus is in our world today? Do you want to know where Jesus is in Sydney? He's here. This is how people should encounter Jesus. They see his body. They see him working through his body. That's what he's saying there. You are his body. We're called to be his hands and his feet on the ground in the communities that we live in. That is an incredible mission. As God brings us together by His grace and for His glory, He says, right, I'm going to give you a mission. Here's what we're going to do. On the earth, you are going to be me. What? Yeah. As people interact with you as a body, I need you to see me. So that's the mission I'm interested in. We have a mission which is in this world, which is incredible, and we have a mission which is out of this world. I mean, there's a bit of X-Files in Ephesians chapter 3. If you read chapter, chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, this is what he says. It says, His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That's wild. Here's what he's saying. In the way you live your lives out together, and the way Sovereign Grace Church has a local expression of his church live out, we're to live in such a way where the very heavenly realms, the angels, look on at our interactions in life group, look on at our interactions in local church, and then turn and glorify the Lord all the more because of what they see. As they see people who want strangers and aliens working out their lives together, carrying one another's burdens, Confessing their sins to one another, crying together, rejoicing together, loving one another for the glory of the Lord, being the very hands and feet of Jesus in the earth, the very heavenly realms and the angelic hosts, turning the face to Godhead once more and glorifying all the more because of what they see. Isn't that incredible? I mean, that really is an X-Files moment, isn't it? You realize the way we operate makes a difference not only in this earth, but in the very heavenly realms. That's incredible. And you know what? I believe a person passionate about the church recognizes that. They're just staggered that they get to be a part. They're just staggered that their names are involved in such a process at all. And they walk in shaking their heads 
passionate about the church rejoices that it is God's plan to redeem a people. That's not all. Number three, a person passionate about the church views their gifts and abilities as resources to serve the church. See, one of the most wonderful and I think informative moments in scripture happens in Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20 Jesus has already set his face like flint, it says, to go towards the cross. And as he is on his way, as he literally approaches Jerusalem, he's there and he's talking to his disciples and he's talking to those close around him. And he explains to them how when he arrives, he's going to be flogged, he is going to be beaten. He's going to be dying a cruel death on the cross and all of them are going to flee from him. And at that point, a mother rocks up and says to Jesus, yeah, that's the thing. You know, when you get to Jerusalem, I've been thinking, my boys, you know, James is joining the other ones, and when you come into your kingdom in Jerusalem, what I've realized is that then you your right, uh, one city your right, one of your left. Is that okay? I mean, this is not one of the most bizarre moments in all scripture. He's just explained what is going to happen to them. He's lived with these guys the last three years and toured with them for the last three years. And as his death approaches, you get a busybody mom rocking in and saying, hey, yeah, you know, when you come in, I'd really like my boys to be seen as truly great. So can they see you arriving here? You know, if I was there, I probably would have gone into a windmill mode. You know, the arms go, oh, you just, I'm going to take you all out. I'm so cross. You know, I've just been so fuming. I can't believe it. I've just told you. I've just tried to help you for three years. You see, I'm out of it. I'm just going home. Yeah, praise God that Jesus is nothing like that. Praise God that he is full of grace, full of compassion, even in the cauldron, which must have been this moment. And he pulls them into one side. And he begins to teach them about what true greatness really is. See, he recognised that James and John's mother just wanted them to have a position of authority because that means culturally they would see great. But he wants to re-educate them with what true greatness really is. So Matthew chapter 20, verse 26, this is what he said. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, true greatness is biblically defined, according to Jesus, was not a position, but a service. True greatness to Jesus wasn't about where you sit, or the letters after your name, or the role you play. It's about serving people. And the word he uses there in the Greek means bond service, the lowest of the low. If you want to be truly great, then serve. Just get amongst them and serve. Lay your lives down for people. 
Lay your lives down for those around you. That was the point that Jesus was trying to make, and that point still carries to this day. True greatness is about laying your life down for other people. It's not about the role you play. It's about being involved at all and then serving people. Considering others more important than yourself. Everything we've been learning through the book of Philippians, being applied into the context of service. And what I love then about Ephesians chapter 4 is that it's in Ephesians chapter 4 as Paul continues to explain his grand design for the church that we realise one of the primary places that we're called to serve is the church. It's the local church where we're connected and committed in. Ephesians 4 verse 16 says it this way. It says, From him the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow. So that it builds itself up in love. That's incredible. Now in the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 28, we have like an Old Testament call of people to come and serve in what was there at that point in the church, namely Israel. He says, tell all the skilled men whom I have given wisdom in such matters to come and serve me. They were trying to build the tabernacle. And so God lets it out there. Listen, this is what I want you to know. Tell all those people who I've skilled, who I've given gifts to, get them to come in and let's get them serving so that we can build this tabernacle. And in Ephesians chapter 4, I think what we have is the call to the church. To tell all the skilled men and all the skilled women to come and help me build the temple. It is no longer a tabernacle or a place. It's the church. It's the bride of Christ. That which he died for, which he bled for, which he laid his life down for. It's a call to each and every person in the room to come and play your part for the building of the local church. Now that's why it's so important in the context of church to be connected and committed to a local church, isn't it? I mean, look at those words there. He says, From him the whole body joined and held together by every joint. You can't be like that with the universal church. Well, who do you relate to? Oh, everybody in the world who's a Christian. That's great. Who are you joined to and held together with? Ah, no one. Okay, well, Ephesians 4.16, they can't work for you, which in my book means you are being disobedient to the Word of God. Who are you joined to? Who are you connected to? Who are you committed with? This verse doesn't work out of a context of a local church. We've all been given gifts for the common good. And when we refuse to commit to a place to give of our gifts and abilities, we're basically saying, God, you're doing a great job of right, but I'm doing something else. When he says, I want you to come up my house. Really my church. Really my bride. Which I've joined you to by your grace. It's so important that we find ourselves connected and committed to a local church. And it's so important then that by the grace of God we play our parts. Now folks, I want you to know as a church, I thank God for the way you serve. You are an incredible servant. You really are. And I look back, I was saying to the guys at Newcomers Night this week, I look back at when we were at Normanhurst and we used to get the trailer and unpack the trailer and then you open the doors and you find there are two so you take them all down, you set up the band, set up the PA, do the service at the end, take the band down, get everything in the trailer, the 
people swearing in the back of the train because they can't believe it won't go in again. And then you put all the exam decks back up again, and then you close the doors, and then you get caught in the school because something still wasn't right. You know, that's the way it rolled. It was difficult and hard times, and you served your socks off. You were amazing, and you continue to be amazing. I don't think I'll ever forget Brendan and Charlotte's wedding. When this church just really <laughs> flung themselves in and really did build an incredible day. It was incredible to see the way people were communicating, they were serving, they were bringing different gifts to bear. Something magical was taking place. The same happened then at our carol service, I think. When we gathered in Norman, as people were using their gifts, something special was happening and we were the body of Jesus Christ on the ground serving our community. I thank God for the way you serve. And so don't take this as a critique. Because my critique would be, you're extremely good at this. And yet at the same time, moving into this facility, I don't want us to then rest on our laurels and go, you know, it was so hard in the early days, but now it's so easy, I'm done. The gifts and abilities that God has given you, He's still given us them to move forward. Because we ain't done. The end of the beginning has happened, but now it's the beginning of moving forward. There's so much for us. So we need to play our part. You know, one story that I think illustrates this so well is in James Montgomery Boyce's... Um, sorry, not a story, an illustration. is in James Montgomery Boyce's commentary on Ephesians. He says this. He says, God is letting history unfold like a great drama upon a cosmic stage. The angels are the audience and we are the actors. And this drama has been unfolding across the centuries as first Adam and Eve, then Abraham, Moses... David, Isaiah, John the Baptist, Peter, Paul, and all the other men and women of Christian history, both the great and the minor, are brought onto stage to play the part that God assigned them, and speak words that come from hearts that love them. And now, you and I are the players in this drama. Satan is on the attack, and the angels are straining forward to look on. Are they seeing the manifold wisdom of God in you? As you go through your part and speak your lines, oh, would they see it. For it can be seen in you alone and it is on your stage, through your life, you are called to deliver your lines. My friends, I want to encourage you, keep delivering your lines. Those gifts and abilities, God gave you those. And in Ephesians chapter 4, he's calling you then to come and play your part. So play it. And as you do, be aware that you are building the bride of Christ. You're playing a part in building something that will last forever. Your family, your blood family, will not last forever. Your spiritual family will always last forever. You're able to play a part in something that will last forever. So play it. Play it passionately and as you do, realise that you are imitating Jesus Christ himself. Gave his life as a ransom for me. You hung on the cross for his life. You know, being passionate about the local church involves understanding that Jesus is a star player. It involves a rejoicing that we get to part with other people in the context of life. And it involves playing our part for the glory of the Lord. And yet we'd be making a mistake if we didn't also realise that being passionate about the church is being aware of how much we need the church. And that's point four. A person passionate about the church is aware of how much they need 
the church. And my friends, this is so true, isn't it? And to think anything other than we need the church just shows how deceived we've become. See, the church is so often in the Bible talked of as an army. It really is people striving side by side for the advance of the gospel. It's people being the body of Jesus Christ on the earth in a way that is aggressive, that is intentional and is missional by very nature. The church is also seen in the Bible as a family, brothers and sisters. They don't just call themselves, hey bro, but actually operate that, yes, they are my brother. So that informs the way I am. And I'd have to say personally, for me, for Emma and I, I think we've grown to understand and appreciate that even more since moving to Australia. In the UK, we're in the same church with 80% of our family. It was great. And now we have no family member within a 10,000 mile radius. It's hard. It's isolating. And when you at different times have your children crying because they miss their wider family, you can't just give them a call or hop on a plane and pop over. It can't happen. I thank God then that this church has become, without doubt, our family. You've become brothers and sisters. I never imagined ever that I would be sitting with a non-blood relative on Christmas Day. In the UK, that just doesn't happen. You, you sit with your family. So we tried it for the first few years with Emma and myself and three kids. We're like, well, should we pull another cracker or what should we do now? We're used to there being about 40 people around. In recent years, we've started to gather with families and we've been aware this is glorious. Because these aren't just any families. These are people that we're going to share eternity with. People that God's called us into unity with, to, to be joined to and participate with for his glory. The church is a family. You know, the church is also, in a very real other sense, it's also a hospital. See, God hasn't gathered together a group of perfect people, has he? You may have noticed, I certainly have, because I lead us and I'm one of them, we are not a perfect, independent, super-Christian group. Oh, it's not like you walk in and you go, I just want to join this church because these are all rock stars. This is amazing. This is beautiful. Now, people walk in and they think, oh, you guys are just like me. You think that, that gives me heart? We are. We ain't perfect. We're not independent. We're not super Christians. And the reason for that is because that's not who God has gathered together. God has gathered together a group of people with deficiencies and weaknesses and challenges. And then he puts us together and he says, Now, you need each other. You're going to need those around you. It's the way you're going to make it. And that's the way I've designed it. Reverend Welsh says it this way. He says, of course we believe in the total adequacy of Jesus Christ to meet the total need of the total person. But we must remember this also. He saves in the context of community of faith. So it isn't Jesus and me. It's Jesus and we. And how true that is. My friends, when we are sad, we need Jesus. We also need so often somebody to be Jesus to us, don't we? When we're struggling with what we're going through, we need Jesus more than anything. And so often we need somebody to be Jesus to us, to come alongside and encourage us. When we are blowing it in our lives and we are really stimulating sin in our lives and we don't know how to get out of it, we need Jesus. 
We so often need somebody to be Jesus to us, to help us see where we're going wrong and hold us accountable and pastor us and help us through it. When we are, by God's grace, tired and worn out because we've been doing it by ourselves, we need Jesus. We also need somebody to pray for us and be Jesus to us and care for us and stand with us. And I know I do. I'm not built to be by myself. I can't go by myself. The other reason why I love this church is because I need this church. And don't hear me say that I need this position, because I do not. And I actually look forward to the day when one day, when I, hopefully when I'm old and grey, I will take my seat near the back and I will watch another group of pastors leading this church and I will graciously and wildly and passionately take my part and enjoy a lot of time with my wife. I don't need this position but I do need you. Because that's the way we're made. We're made to need brothers and sisters and those around us and those that will help us. One story that illustrates this beautifully is by Donald Gray at Barnhouse. He says, Several years ago, two students graduated from Chicago Kent College of Law. The highest ranking student in the class was a blind man named Overton, And when he received his honour, he insisted that half the credit go to his friend, Caprizac. They had met one another in school when the armless Mr. Caprizac had guided the blind Mr. Overton down a flight of stairs. This acquaintance ripened into a friendship and a beautiful example of interdependence. The blind man carried the books. The armless man read aloud in their common study. And thus the individual deficiency of each was compensated by the other. After their graduation, they planned to practice law together. Now this room is filled with Overtons and Caprizacs, isn't it? We're not these independent, super, all-got-it-together Christians. There's a whole load of us in this room that are blind, and there's a whole load of us in this room that are armless. And the quicker we see ourselves like that, the more we will delight and be passionate about the church, as we realise, I need I'm never going to make it. Never going to please Jesus Christ in my life. I'm never going to become the person God's called me to be unless I embrace other people. A person passionate about the church is aware of how much they need the church. And finally, by way of conclusion, number five, a person passionate about the church builds their life around the church. Friends, if all that we have talked about today is really true, if Jesus really is our King and the one whom our lives are all about, if we really believe that, if we really did take him as Saviour and Lord, Saviour and King, meaning that I bow my knee, I give up my life, because now all of my life is you, so where do you want me? What do you want me to do? How do you want me to use my energy and my gifts? Because it's all for you. If we really believe our life has been bought with a price, that Jesus Christ bled so that I may have life and come into the context of community and be used for his glory, if we really believe the church is central to God's plan of redemption as it is all the way through this book, if we really believe that as we read Acts and Acts continues, that it's still the local church through whom God is reaching out and taking his gospel forward and planting and building local churches for the glory of the Lord, if we truly believe then that he's given us gifts and abilities which we're called to use in the context of the local church for his glory, 
And if we truly believe that we need the local church, that I need those around me, friends, if we really believe that, then I submit to you that as Christians, it would radically affect our lives, would it not? Surely if this is true, it affects everything. It affects every single area and means of my life. If he really is my king, and if the church really is his plan of redemption, and if I'm really called to play a part and I need you, I think it changes everything. And yet it is so easy, I think, for us as Christians to think of church as if it is high school. See, we never truly build our lives around high school, do we? No one does that. It's like, oh, high school, it's everything to me. I'm building my whole life around high school. No one does that. You don't build your life around high school. Now, high school is something you go along to for a few years, and then you graduate. And while you go through high school, you're always thinking about the next stage ahead, the next thing ahead, and you're always looking forward to when you move on to something more. And when we bring that approach of thinking into the church, we will never truly commit to a church. We'll just date it. And so sure, I'm going steady with Sovereign Grace right now. You know, they're good right now, and they're really pretty. And when I first joined Sovereign Grace, she was really attractive to me. But, you know, it's worn off over time, and, you know, our relationships go. And I'm kind of looking for a new day. It's so easy to think of church like high school. And yet church is biblically defined as so much more, isn't it? The bride of Christ, which Jesus Christ bled for. John Stott then says it this way. One of my favourite quotes. As if the church is central to God's purpose as seen in both history and the gospel, then it must surely also be central to our lives. How can we take lightly what God takes so seriously? How dare we push to the circumference what God has placed at the centre? Friends, that quote I think is sobering. That quote is radical, but I submit to you that quote is absolutely biblical. The church is the bride of Christ. It's that which he's been doing and building for centuries past, as centuries go on and on, and it's still what he's doing for this back. So how dare we push to the circumference, something that God's taken to the centre? How dare we date it as if it's just some small girlfriend? Rather than bow the knee to the head of the church and give our lives to that. So I want to ask you, if Jesus is so clearly and evidently passionate about the church, then does your life reflect a similar passion for the church? If it does, then praise God. What an evidence of grace. If your life reflects this passion, then I'm rejoicing with you. I really genuinely am, because that was just so wonderful to know the work of God in your life that is creating this passion because without the work of God in your life you would never experience this. And yet if this doesn't reflect your passion for the church, if yours is somewhat different, then I want to exhort you, my friend, would today then begin and launch a season of grace-motivated change in your life. Grace-motivated because everything we've talked about today doesn't doesn't change the way God feels about us. We're not justified because of the way we love the church. 
There's nothing that we can do to add to the cross. Jesus Christ, God is rejoicing and singing over us through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Not the finished work of Jesus Christ, bless your passion in the church. It never will be. And to think of the church that way is a work. That's why all change can be grace motivated because, because we're aware this will not affect the way he feels about me. He loves me because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so all change needs to be grace motivated. And it all changed when we see our face in the mirror of God's word, I think needs to be genuine and real. Because my friends, this, this is his bride we're talking about. A bride that he chose from eternity past. A bride that he sets his affection on and then brought back from sin and death, even though it would cost him his own life. A bride that even now he gently and patiently sanctifies, cleanses and prepares for himself with a love that is zealous and unchanging and abounding. Jesus Christ is passionate about his bride. By God's grace, would we be too? Let's pray. Lord, it is staggering truth that we get to be a part of your bride. Lord, the people that were dead in our transgressions and sins, the people that were running away from you, that were uninterested in you, and yet in your grace you called our names and you laid your life down then for us. Lord, would we never lose sight in our generation? of how you feel about your bride? Would we never just pigeonhole church at something like high school or a high school date? But would we consistently be sobered and radicalised by the truth is, this is what you laid your life down for. And as we seek to imitate you then and be conformed to you, Lord, give us a passion for the local church. As we work out a passion for the gospel, would it be worked out where it should be biblically defined? in the context of the local church. Jesus, would you help us do this? In your precious name. Amen.